The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Did you know that we've built more microgrids in the U.S. than anyone else? These self-contained electrical networks allow you to generate your own electricity on-site and use it when you need it most. Keep your power on during a grid outage. Store electricity and sell it back during peak demand times. Integrate with renewables such as wind and solar. With a microgrid, you get energy control on your terms. See what's possible at www.se.com US microgrid. The Interchange is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply through resilient, predictable, and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable, 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Today's energy challenges are unprecedented and widespread. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us all toward a zero-carbon future. Find the links in the show notes. It's not so much solar, it's solar and what it's coupled to, and that will be energy storage. There's a lot of natural pairing between solar and storage just because it is all on this sort of diurnal cycle. This is the Interchange Recharge. I'm David Banmiller. Welcome. For the U.S. to achieve President Biden's target of 90% renewables by 2035, an extra 9 terawatts of energy storage is required. There are a myriad of hurdles to overcome. On the show this week, we look at how the U.S. can leap over these barriers. How can we fix the duration problem? What are the issues with investment and government incentives standing in the way of progress? Joining me is Rebecca Chez, Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Purdue University. Rebecca has a PhD in engineering and public policy from Carnegie Mellon University, and her research focuses on the intersection of performance, technology adoption, and public policy for energy technologies. Rebecca, welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here and talk uh, about some of these challenges with energy storage. Oh, great. So as I look at the energy transition in whole, uh, I've always said that there are really four key aspects to the energy transition, uh, depending on the different vertical, but they're all pretty much interrelated. And that comes down to technology and infrastructure, government and investors, consumers, and supply chain. Obviously, you need the technology and infrastructure build out to support it. Government incentives or regulation to help with investment to make sure that the returns are there and that the money's coming in to fund a lot of this build out and the technology development. You need the consumers there. Everybody's pretty much for clean energy, but to the extent they're not paying 20% more than they're paying today and that it's also reliable. And then lastly, supply chain. We need, we need to make sure that the supply is there to meet the demand that that we forecast for really healthy adoption going forward. So first, I thought we'd, we'd start on the technology uh, as it relates to energy storage. That's going to be a critical component because it, it ties into the consumers with the reliability uh, to a lesser extent, aesthetics, uh, but really reliability for the consumers as they look at their energy consumption. And just curious your thoughts on what are you seeing in the way of the technological development for energy storage and what can we expect going forward? Today's grid electricity energy storage, which is really what we're talking about a lot when we're talking about reliability, is you want to have this electricity system that's dependable, that we can use renewable resources uh, around the clock to meet most of our energy demands. And so we're talking mostly about electrical energy storage in that case. Today, 
the market is still dominated by pumped hydro storage. We built a bunch of pumped hydro initially when we built nuclear power plants uh, because nuclear power plants run continuously, but people don't use electricity in the same continuous, constant manner, right? So people go to sleep, people wake up, you use different amounts of electricity on a sort of diurnal cycle. Uh, and so matching that was sort of the initial idea behind all of this pumped hydro energy storage. But we sort of tapped out that market, at least in the United States. And so then today, when you look about look at grid energy storage, you're mostly talking about adding uh, things like battery energy storage and primarily lithium ion battery energy storage. Um, so lithium ion batteries got their start in electronics. They were co-opted for electric vehicles. And so now grid energy storage is borrowing from those electric vehicle technologies and basically installing these battery packs on the grid. And so in terms of the the battery storage, uh, I, I think the average duration is about four hours right now. And obviously, if you're looking at seasonal weather patterns or weather-related disruptions, clearly we need to get well beyond four hours. I think that ties into the consumer part of the equation that they need the reliability. Uh, they need to make sure that whether it's cloudy outside, uh, whether the wind's not blowing, or whether they have a storm-related disruption for a number of days, even, even a week or weeks at a time, uh, that they're not going to be disrupted, particularly when they're trying to heat their home. What do you see in terms of the advancements on that? How do we get past this four-hour kind of average and increase the efficiency? Sure. And so I would say it's not so much, batteries don't really care about the duration. You can charge or discharge a battery over two hours, over four hours, over 12 hours. Um, batteries are sort of indifferent to that those on those timescales. It gets more difficult if you want to do fast charging. So 15 minutes or less for a battery pack, like that's very difficult. But on the four, six, eight, 10, 12 hour timescales, batteries are all fine. It's more a factor of does the market make sense for that? So the four hour metric for most energy storage is more of an artifact of the capacity markets for energy technologies in general. So today in most deregulated markets, with the exception of Texas that doesn't have a, a capacity market in the US, if you want to be considered a reliable source and get these capacity payments for being available to provide electricity, the sort of metric in most of those markets is to have four hours storage duration. And so you say, this is our rated power that we can provide, and we can provide that for four hours, and then you will be compensated for that. And so that's that four hour metric is common in most of those markets, but in some of them it can vary. So PJM is the notorious kind of outlier where if you want to be fully compensated as a capacity resource, you have to have 10 hours of storage, which is obviously much higher um, than some of these other shorter duration markets. Um, and so there's even talk now about whether they should be uh, reducing that duration re requirement to have it be closer to that four hour metric. Um, the other sort of piece of this is even though they've got four hours of rated power duration, most batteries aren't necessarily cycling through that four hours on a regular basis. So when you look at the actual data of how these things are dispatched, they're usually cycled for something on the order of like two hours on average. And so the four hours is definitely more of a, a market artifact than any sort of technological limitation. Um, so you can definitely discharge today's lithium ion batteries over 10, 12, 24 hours. Uh, that's all fine. It's just a matter of whether they're cost effective enough to do that. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. It's uh, four hours kind of seems like it may be the most cost effective. But if you reduce 
PGM, you mentioned at 10 hours. If you reduce that to four, is that really an aspect of trying to increase the amount uh, of kind of renewable energy for these different locations? Or is it is it something different? The PJM, like 10 hours, I think is sort of their own sort of metric of how they've defined it relative to things like other, like a natural gas power plant or something that would be competing on those capacity metrics to provide peaking capacity is what they, they're sort of competing against. They're also in the process of trying to increase renewable capacity and whether uh, there are different metrics for improving what they consider reliable output from those markets. And so that's a PJM specific problem and, and challenge uh, more so than like a, a broader discussion that's been happening about how you should be increasing the the storage capacity in the U.S. Yeah, on that, because, you know, our guest uh, that we had last week, we were talking specifically about solar energy. And and the point came up that you can have all the renewable energy built out across the globe that you want. And and it won't really matter unless you have the storage capacity there to support it. I mean, take a world where you're 100% renewable energy, right? And you're looking at the storage. So you're going to have to have a significant amount of build out for for the storage there to support um, no disruptions. How do you how do you see that playing out as we continue the renewable push? You, some some areas don't have any regulation of a requirement for the storage to be built out, which I think is is another aspect of of the government portion of this that I was talking about earlier. But how do you get to be able to support? 35 percent uh, or 90 percent like Biden's commitment for 2035? What do you need from a storage capacity to be able to meet that? So, and again, this goes back to how humans are on a diurnal cycle as well. And so it pairs very well with solar because most of the variability is sort of cyclical over a 24-hour period, right? So uh, we can consume a lot of energy during the day from solar power uh, because we're also awake and using energy at that time. And you're, you're trying to provide storage capacity over you know, the overnight period in the evenings when people use a lot of electricity because we're all at home and turning on our TVs and our dishwashers and everything like that. Um, and so matching that demand, there's a lot of uh, capacity and energy used in those patterns. What seems more challenging to me is how do you make storage cheap enough to be usable for, you know, two days, three days, four days, where there's limited solar and you don't have the opportunity to recharge these resources. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for even just solar power plants. And we've seen a lot of this where they'll co-locate storage so that they're able to improve their uh, economics of when they sell electricity so they can arbitrage sort of on their own of when they sell power uh, versus when they store it locally instead of just selling into an oversaturated market in the mid-afternoon where they've got a lot of existing very low-cost solar that's already being pushed into the market. Yeah, that co-location seems to be a common theme about building out that storage infrastructure with the co-locations with, with the solar farms. What about the battery size. I know in the past it's been pretty large. I know down here in Texas we were looking at one where, I mean, these were massive buildings uh, of storage. And through technological advancement, we hope to bring the size down without impacting the efficiency. Do you see that technology developing? Uh, kind of like computers. I mean, not to show my age, but I remember my first computer probably took up the size of my office now. <laughs> and now it fits in a briefcase. So just curious if we can continue to see that type of advancement as it relates to the size of the of the storage. So in terms of size, like, yes, there are improvements. I don't see it being adopted first for grid energy storage. There are other higher value markets where you could imagine. So 
you know, the batteries we use in our iPhones or our headphones are much, much more energy dense than the things we use in our cars, but they're also much more expensive. We just don't care because the battery itself is much smaller. So we're happy to pay for that improved density. And I would see things like car markets, especially for like long distance trucking, where uh, having the ability to store other stuff in your in the back of the truck is really important to the economics of, of shipping overall. And so uh, I would say those markets would probably be the earlier adopters. And then things like grid energy storage are, are less of the early adopters for in extremely energy dense technologies. Um, it's definitely important. I think there's also a lot you could do on the design side to improve like the square footage, at least of the land use for energy storage and some other innovation related to that as we can make things a little bit safer. So it's a big limiting factor is a lot of fire management systems for these big, you know, energy storage facilities, just because there is so much energy stored. If something goes wrong, you really want to be able to have good egress and good fire management systems. It makes sense to have that, the early adopters being mobility. Right. I mean, that makes sense rather than stationary that that doesn't change, which gets into what you brought up earlier about hydro and, and batteries as well. I mean, where do you see storage going? I mean, will batteries eventually dominate the storage market or do you have another idea that there's other technologies out there that will come ahead? Yeah. So in the U.S., at least, I think we've sort of tapped out the pumped hydro market. Uh, I think energy battery energy storage is a good early player if we're talking about getting these things out and at scale by 2030. It's an existing technology. There's a lot of manufacturing capacity in the pipeline that if it isn't have hasn't already been built yet, that's a good sort of early technology to adopt. There's a lot of discussion about whether you should move towards like things like hydrogen production or ammonia production and, and reuse those, uh, whether in a fuel cell or some other kind of combustion method as a form of long duration storage. I think it's a little bit more challenging. There's a lot uh, of other considerations. So storing hydrogen is extremely difficult just because it's a very small particle. And so it's even more difficult to store the natural gas. And so pressurizing hydrogen has been a challenge for fuel cell vehicles. It would be a similar challenge for uh, grid energy storage as well. But it's a very simple electrochemical reaction. And so that also has its own sort of benefits. And do you see coming out of COP26 with Biden's 90% clean energy by 2035, do you see that as achievable? And if so, what do you think needs to happen to be able to get there? Yeah, so I think that's very achievable. And if you talk about energy storage, the real challenges are these handful of unpredictable events per year where you have limited solar and wind and no opportunity to provide like a recharge opportunity. And so on those kinds of days, you would imagine using, you know, existing natural gas capacity, uh, other sort of power generation technologies that already exist that we maybe leave online a little bit longer than we would otherwise use day to day and providing some kind of compensation mechanism for letting those resources continue to exist and be operational, but perhaps not be dispatched nearly as much or as frequently as they are today. But from an energy standpoint, most of the energy we use is on these fairly regular cycles. You can get there with relatively short durations of energy storage, although short is still uh, much longer than the four hours we're talking about today. But if you're still cycling it almost every day, uh, it doesn't really matter what the, the duration is. It's just whether that storage would be compensated because it's cycled almost every day. I agree with you completely, because I think obviously where we are today is you've got fossil fuels leading the way with renewables is more of a backstop. And I think obviously the, the, the goal is to get where renewables 
are leading the charge and you have the fossil fuels as the backstop to fill in these disruptions as it relates to to weather or or seasonal issues whatever the case may be and i think that's obviously the goal but i've always said that the energy transition is something that needs to be a very very measured approach because it's a very long complicated equation where if you change one input drastically you have unintended consequences for another input that could really come back to bite you and i think this is one if you try to shut down all of the oil and gas drilling and really almost force the renewable picture, then you could lose support because the costs become astronomical. You've got the supply chain issues that could come about from it. And I really like the approach that you just outlined that, look, you need to have that as a backstop because it gets to that reliability factor that you need from a consumer to be supportive. They just want to make sure that they're going to have reliable energy at a cost-effective rate. And if you can make sure that you have that backstop so that there is no disruption to the consumer, that is the way to go. Now, there's going to be a longer lead time to it, right? Because you're going to have to eventually phase that down, but you can't cut it off drastically, which goes into the other leg to the stool, which is the government aspect to this. I still think that at least in the early stages, you need government action, whether it's the incentive tax credits whether it's regulation in terms of requiring certain types of renewable energy or storage capacity. And that also will help prompt the investors to fund the technology development, the infrastructure build out. In your mind, what role should government be playing as it relates to trying to achieve these goals and having that measured approach like we were just talking about? Sure. And it sort of gets to some of the challenges around supply chain. So globally, there are over 250 gigafactories in the pipeline or online to make battery energy storage technologies. The US is a little bit behind, so there's not as many relative to places like Europe or, or Asia, but all of the ones in the US are tied to automakers. And so they're gonna make those batteries and they're gonna end up in cars. And so that's great for the mobility transition, uh, but when you think about what's happening for the grid, there's not like the same sort of analogous company to put forth that level of investment to build these big factories in the same way that like a Ford or a GM uh, can announce that they're building these partnerships and have access to the capital to build the factories. Um, and there's not the same parallel in the energy space. And so in different parts of the world, and China in particular, is providing a lot of government support to build out their kind of manufacturing capacity. And we don't have the same sort of parallel in the U.S., especially at the grid level, right? And so Ford's going to make batteries that are going to end up in Ford's. They're already facing their own supply chain issues and to be able to, to meet their own EV demand, that there's not going to be anything left over for them to sell to grid storage markets in the U.S. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you looking for more energy control, but worry about the upfront costs of a microgrid and renewables? We have you covered. Schneider Electric offers energy as a service for customers like you who spend $40,000 or more each month on energy. With energy as a service, you get customized solutions to help you meet goals for sustainability, efficiency, and cost control, including a microgrid and adjacent energy infrastructure. We also handle every step of the process and assume financial and operational risks. Upgraded electrical equipment, reduced emissions, predictable long-term pricing. Energy as a Service provides all this and more. Find the links in the show notes. Bloom Energy is accelerating the hydrogen economy by partnering with industry leaders to produce clean, green hydrogen. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of renewable energy sources, 
such as concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear power to generate green hydrogen at the scale needed to tackle today's urgent climate crisis. Bloom's pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars and is uniquely designed to address both the causes and consequences of our changing climate, decarbonizing our world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator of electricity or as an electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. Leveraging scale and experience, Bloom provides solutions needed to propel our world towards a better energy future. See the link in the show notes. What are the other aspects that we look at for renewables uh, and just from environmental standards as well is recycling. And so with the build out of energy storage on the battery side, do you see recycling becoming a significant part? And if so, do you see any environmental issues or any hiccups that we could face as it relates to recycling these batteries so that we reduce the burden on the mining industry to produce these elements that are required for the storage capacity? Sure. And so recycling will definitely play an increasing role. Just, you know, there weren't that many EVs on the road 10 years ago. There were almost, you know, a handful of, te- of Tesla Roadsters. Uh, and now we're getting to a place where they're, they're having some significant market share. And so recycling is always this interesting piece, but it's always got this lag built into it because unless you have like a big recall, like the GM recalls, uh, for the most part, you're still you know, figuring out what the battery market was like 10 years ago. And so it's a great resource to potentially find things like lithium. Uh, right now, most of the recycling interest is still on what I would call traditional recycling metals. And so it's things like cobalt and nickel that are really high value. Uh, and so most of the recycling capacity today is still sort of geared towards recovering those metals. And so we're most, they're, not all facilities are capable of even recovering lithium when they're doing lithium ion battery recycling. So some of that's still ending up in a slag material. So improving the processes, uh, moving towards like a hydrometallurgical process or even potentially directly recycling. So basically trying to capture some of the embodied energy that go into like making these mixtures of powdered material to uh, just remanufacture into batteries directly could have the most environmental benefits. Uh, But achieving that's really difficult because everybody's kind of got their own secret sauce of what's in their own batteries. And so getting to the place where we can agree on things or say like, yes, we, we believe that the quality is sufficient that we would want to use that material in a recycled battery is difficult, but that's where we kind of have to go get towards if we want to um, really see the environmental benefits of recycling and not just be melting these things down and recovering some of the really high value materials and then scrapping the rest. Given your background, do you think at some point it would make sense for the government to step in to require that a certain percentage of battery manufacturing is from recycled batteries and and then obviously provide maybe tax incentives to help with the investment there because you mentioned the technology and really being able to to build that out to make it efficient and make sense but do you see that as as maybe longer down the road as some type of policy implementation that would make sense yeah i think that makes a lot of sense so europe is already in the process of of passing and updating their uh, recycled content requirements on batteries, um, and they're they're directly tied to things like the environmental impacts and also the ethical concerns. And so they're the most stringent around things like cobalt because cobalt mining is so concentrated in places like Congo where it's not well regulated and there's not great labor practices or safety practices. 
And so they've really pushed hard to improve the recycling of, of those materials specifically. The U.S. doesn't have similar regulations for lithium ion batteries, but we do have recycling requirements for lead acid batteries. So regular old car batteries. And so we're, we're extremely uh, effective at recycling those. I think over 99% of lead acid batteries in the U.S. are recycled. It's actually had benefits for the lead industry. So the lead is better because it's been recycled so many times. You've removed so many impurities uh, that the product itself is actually better. And so getting to a place with some government intervention to say like, yes, you need to be investing in these technologies and the processes to recover these materials would go a long way to improving the recycling capacity in the U.S. Okay. What do you think government should do in the short term to help, whether it's regulation requiring a certain amount of storage being built into the grid from a renewable standpoint, or, or any other actions that you think would really help with the continued adoption and build out of, of storage capacity? So I think if you wanted to have a something similar to like a renewable portfolio standard where you say that you have to have a certain amount of energy storage. I think there's been some other interesting things in California to try and uh, regulate where the energy stored in batteries is coming from. So saying that a certain percentage of it has to come from zero carbon sources, I think is a really interesting way to try and get at some of these challenges. Because right today, there's you're only if you were only arbitraging on price, you might not necessarily charge the batteries with renewable resources in every single market in the U.S., uh, just depending on the current electricity mix. And so trying to incentivize or disincentivize that bad, that negative behavior and, and trying to incentivize uh, the use of more renewable electricity or zero carbon electricity generally uh, for charging uh, energy storage would be beneficial um, and also helping to these broad, for these broader climate goals. And I, th I think that's the right approach. Uh, and I think it's a step-by-step -step approach requiring a certain amount of storage to support a certain amount of renewable sourced energy and not making it to where you cut off your nose to spite your face that it's okay by 2025, this is where we'd like to be by 2028. I mean, even short steps like that, I think is the right approach because you get time for the build out and the development and the adoption, but you also give the consumer the time to be comfortable with the reliability and that it's coming from renewable sources and they're not seeing the disruption, but it's done in such a measured approach that it makes sense and everything is lockstep together. It's not one taking a giant leap while the others are left behind. You know, moving on to kind of another leg of the stool, which is the consumer, which I think obviously it needs to be cost effective and it needs to be reliable. We've talked about how we get it to be reliable, but then you look at the cost aspect and you mentioned lithium ion. Uh, we've seen a, an increase of cost for lithium. And that is one of my big concerns that I think sometimes gets overlooked with the energy transition is the supply chain. So it's going to be kind of a common theme of these podcasts in that how do you make sure that the supply is there to meet the demand? And I think one answer is it's that measured approach, giving them the mining sector the ability to, to ramp up so that it's not short-term spikes in, in materials cost, but it also allows for the technological advancement in addition to that. So again, it's that measured approach. What do you see as supply chain issues? Because one concern that I also have is that when you look across the renewable landscape, sometimes they tend to go down to the same raw material. Uh, we looked at, uh, we were talking about solar last week and how copper 
is becoming technologically feasible for solar panels instead of silver. But, you know, copper also goes into electric vehicles. And so you look at all these different sources and they're going down to the same raw materials that could create a supply crunch and thus increasing the cost. And therefore you start losing the consumer because they're paying so much more. What do you think needs to be done or what issues do you see with supply chain today? And with those issues, what do you think needs to be done to help ensure that supply is there? Sure. And so you mentioned uh, sort of the lithium price increases, and we've definitely seen that. I, get, I think it's sort of a misnomer. So lithium ion batteries are called lithium ion batteries because lithium is the charge carrier. And that's sort of what's tying together what is really a diverse sort of set of technologies, um, especially as you start to think for like forward thinking, looking at like lithium metal batteries or solid state batteries and things like that. They still use lithium as the charge carrier. But lithium is is the common technology because it's small and light. And so the ions are tiny. And so if like you pull out like the periodic table, it's like up in the top left corner. And that's why it's good at being uh, in batteries. And so you end up not having all that much lithium by mass in any lithium ion battery. And so, yes, you can see these huge price spikes and it's definitely not helpful for making things cheaper. But from the overall cost perspective, uh, it's not having as significant impact as uh, other sort of material challenges. And so to get to your second point that you made about sort of the common base materials for all of these technologies. So like nickel in particular, I think is a real challenge. And so like the nickel prices have gone up. And so I think that's having a much more substantial impact on the lithium ion battery prices um, than the change in lithium prices, even though, you know, we've seen huge spikes in lithium prices. And so having things like nickel, so nickel is commonly used in fuel cells as well. And so as, as the alternative to platinum, which has been historically super expensive for forever. And so having access to these metals, um, but also the specific precursor and, and composition of the metals. And so that's the sort of gap. Like, yes, we can produce enough nickel. We can't produce enough nickel sulfate, which is what everybody wants to make all of these batteries. And so it's not so much that we can't mine it. There's plenty of lithium. Anywhere you find salt in the world, you will find lithium. Uh, it's just whether it's in concentrations that are high enough and useful enough for us. And, and to get to these precursors, that you'd actually want to use to make a battery. Is nickel the most used substance in the battery? I know I know nickel and cobalt are key elements to it. Yes, yeah, so nickel, and, and the trend has been to try and reduce the amount of cobalt. So you basically, uh, and you'll look at like battery chemistries and sometimes they'll say like NMC111. And that just means that nickel, manganese, and cobalt are all in the same molar ratio. And then uh, the trend has been to try and increase the amount of nickel relative to cobalt in particular. And so we've been pretty successful at reducing some of the cobalt content, but you have to match that with increasing nickel. And so changing the nickel price will have a much more substantial impact because there's more nickel in a lithium ion battery by weight than lithium. And that gets to the technological advancements that, that we talk about as the necessary. And that's why when I look at those four key areas that I talked about at the beginning that all need to be working in tandem moving forward for the energy transition. That's why you, you can't lose sight of one versus the other. You, you can't have the technological advancements and not realize that you're not going to have the supply there. Um, and you can't lose sight of the, the cost efficiencies because that's where the, the government kind of needs to, to step in to help move these things forward. Because I think if you keep everything status quo, that fossil fuels will just continue to, to run everything. 
it's already built out, it's cost efficient, and but it can't be drastic action. I know that there's a lot of debate on what role the government should play, but I think they should play a role for the two aspects that we were talking about is one, to help with the regulation to ensure the adoption and build out. I, I think you need to create incentives or guidance from them to to help achieve that, but also with any incentive tax credits or anything they can do from an investor standpoint to make sure that the returns are there. Uh, because event investors are going to obviously chase returns, particularly in the public markets. And so in order for it to compete with oil and gas, at least again, in the early stages, I'm not saying that this is a long-term solution that government plays a role. I think for the early part of the transition, they need to be active uh, for those reasons. And curious on to your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so I definitely think there's a role for government. I think there's a lot of also role for government to help some of these smaller companies that might be able to see, like the mining companies might not necessarily have the same access to capital that a big oil or gas company would have. And so providing some help to them, like they can clearly see that these challenges are coming as well. They play a more direct role in some of these supply chain challenges, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're able to rally the same sort of investment or justify the same level of risk that another bigger corporation might be able to more readily absorb. If you're a nickel mining company, um, that might represent a lot more uh, risk to the corporation than some of these bigger, you know, massive energy companies can take on today. And so the, the government has a real role to play in sort of those smaller uh, markets where there's potentially a lot more benefit from relatively even small investments, but just being able to absorb some of that risk that a, a smaller company might not be as willing to take on. Yeah, I mean, believe it or not, it, it pains me to say, because I'm a free market guy. <laughs> and so when I talk about the government involvement, um, it, it's not something that I typically would endorse, except for the fact that I look at the energy transition and what really needs to be done, because most of my uh, colleagues, we look at what needs to be done and where the energy industry is headed. And I think we're all on the same page that, look, clean energy is is good for the environment. It's good for everybody. And I think it's really where we want to be. The debate really stems around how do you get there and, and what is the appropriate timeline and what action do various parties have to take to help achieve it? And so it, it's very interesting when you talk to people, and again, there's debates around all the various aspects of it, but I think if you really take a step back and look at it, everybody's pretty much on the same page and it's just debating the details. But that's why I like to have this podcast is because I try to look at all different aspects of it. So we talked about solar on the last podcast, but we talked about the four legs to the stool, the government, supply chain, technology, and now storage is obviously in my mind still a, a critical part of, of the energy transition for not only energy consumption, but electric vehicles. And so there's a number of different areas that storage can really help. And as long as we continue on the path of technological advancement and build out and, and adoption and these hurdles that come with seasonality or weather disruption, I think there probably is a lot of misconceptions out there. I mean, we were, I live in Texas and we had the winter storms earlier this year and there's still debate on what caused it. You know, some people say windmills froze, the, the gas storage froze. So there's a number of different uh, finger pointing areas going on on what caused it. And I think it's, it, it comes down to, to really the grid, I think is what we're finding out. But whether founded or unfounded, there's still that 
uncertainty around reliability of renewables. But what I've learned in terms of this podcast is that it's it's really continuing to develop and it's a lot more re- reliable than I think some people may think. And that's why I think we need to continue on in this direction. Yeah. And I would say people sort of conflate variability with unreliability, right? So there are weather events like, you know, there are multiple days of two or three days in a row with no solar or wind. But there are other like seasonal patterns are pretty consistent, right? If if there's not winter, we've got bigger problems than, you know, some slight like lack of reliability in our electricity grid, right? So that seasonal pattern is very, very predictable year over year. There are similar patterns for wind where it's called the summer doldrums in North America, where there's just less wind in the summer. Um, and then obviously less solar power in the winter, but that's very predictable. And you should be able to predict that generally there's going to be sunrise and sunset every day. And when those happen, like we have the technology to calculate like when that happens, depending on what time of year it is. And so that's all very predictable. Uh, it's these unpredictable events, which were initially very challenging for like solar. If there was a cloud that would cut the power production out of an individual solar farm, that was very challenging initially to deal with. And now it's starting to think about, okay, we've got these multiple days in a row where there, there's no solar or wind. And those are the real challenges because you can't predict when those happen within the year, uh, but you can sort of expect a few of those events to happen on a regular basis. And that gets back to our earlier point about how this really gets rolled out, right? Is that you need to have the fossil fuels, you need to have the gas availability uh, for those times. And I think if we can get to that stage, if you can get to that to where you know that there's going to be those disruptions and you just have that backstop so that the consumer doesn't see any change in in their in their use or, or no disruptions, but you're being really driven by the renewable and the storage, but you have that backstop to ensure the reliability. And then as technology develops, you may solve that, right? So you you need either none of it or you need less and less of it, but it's kind of give it time to develop. Right. And I sort of also think about like, what would the grid and the grid's needs and services it's providing look like in 2030 versus today? And if we're going towards this future where there's a lot more transportation that's electrified, there's a lot more um, home heating and cooling. Well, so cooling's already electrified, but heating in large parts of the US is still dominated by natural gas or other fossil fuels. And so the ratio of that in, in terms of overall energy demand uh, and electricity demand will change a lot uh, looking 10 years in the future versus today. What would uh, an electrified manufacturing sector that might be not generating nearly as much on-site electricity as it is today, how would that contribute? Um, and the other sort of thing I think about a lot is that a four-day outage event is preceded by a two-day outage event and a three-day outage event. And so you have time to potentially do things that we haven't really thought through for some of these other electricity loads. So if the manufacturing sector is all electrified and, and incorporated into the grid, could they provide some sort of backstop against energy usage in these rare events uh, and just be compensated for not consuming electricity on those you know, two or three days over the year? Because Texas, your example, was forced into that kind of a scenario. Would we be better off if there was a way for the electricity grade to just pay them to know that they're going to have to shut down again with a few hours, if not days notice? And what sort of role could that play um, to getting some to towards some of these uh, infrequent events and providing reliable electricity? And that's an area that is often not spoken of, right, is the reduction in consumption. Uh, because nobody really wants to talk about that. I think if if you're telling somebody 
that they they can only run their dishwasher or washing machine once every two or three days. I think you lose a lot of that support. But you bring up something very interesting is how do you incentivize the reduction in consumption to really help support again. I mean, there are all these areas that need to come together. And that's one that could help with the adoption moving forward is looking at everybody's energy use and incentivizing a reduction of it or a more efficient use of it. Right. Especially as there's sort of like the human uh, direct basic needs being met. And then also things like that might have a little bit of lag time built into them uh, that might be able to more easily accept the fact that they might be able to be compensated for just not producing uh, goods or or, uh, services at that time. But it's not directly like, I can't turn my TV on or I can't heat my house. Uh, That's a very different ask versus like, hey, you're going to have to, you know, cut a shift of a manufacturing facility. Yeah, I don't want to have the conversation and tell my kids to turn off their PlayStation. That's I've tried that. doesn't work. <laughs> so looking into the future as it relates to energy storage, where do you see us in 10, 15, 20 years down the road as it relates to storage capacity, adoption? Where, where do you see the energy industry, particularly as it relates to maybe even co-location or some of these houses that are relying on maybe propane or, or something like that for heating their homes. Where do you see us in, like I said, 15, 20 years down the road? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of natural pairing between solar and storage just because it is all on this sort of diurnal cycle. And so I think a lot of the co-location also has benefits because you can reduce some of the other sort of infrastructure build out because there's not like a separate site that needs to have um, a connection to the grid if you're all just doing that locally uh, within one sort of fence line. Uh, so I think building that out will think it will play a large role. Um, I do still see a continued push towards um electrified uh, home heating. Uh, Even the DOE has some other programs to try and incentivize better technologies that are uh, better for some of these more extreme climates. So in Texas, where you're at, uh, it's pretty mild. And so a lot of people do have heat pumps and everybody's fairly satisfied with how they perform. Uh, It's getting places like Minnesota to have uh, similar performance characteristics, although you get to some of these rural areas and there's not great natural gas infrastructure. And so when you're in those kinds of scenarios, Um, From a cost perspective, at least, switching to uh, an electrified uh, heat pump is not quite as uh, much of a lift as it would be considered um, if you did have natural gas coming directly to your house to run a furnace. Uh, So I think in some aspects, it's not quite as difficult for some of these more remote areas um, to get to a place where uh, having more electric heating is is a possibility and is a real uh, feasible technology. It's just a matter of like getting people to buy into that, finding, you know, technologies and and people willing to install the technologies and getting familiarity um, even more uh, at the installer level to help sort of improve the adoption of those technologies is going to be really important. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. I mean, what I've always tried to achieve with this podcast is uncovering the various aspects of the energy transition and pulling the cover off some things that are are not always talked about or not seen. And again, it just heightens the the fact that it is a transition. It, it is not overnight because there are so many pieces to this puzzle. And if you're missing a piece, you're not you're not seeing the entire picture. And this has been very helpful in terms of uncovering some of those, like we talked about, and and the various people and areas and industries that really need to play a part to achieve these. And I don't disagree with lofty goals that that the 
COP26 or even the individual governments have come out with. I just think, again, it needs to be a measured approach. And by bringing up these topics for discussion, it makes sure that everybody is aware of them and, and thinking through them so that we have an appropriate energy transition to where everybody is behind it. Everybody recognizes the positivity around it and what we can achieve but that we're just doing it in the right way. And I think having these types of discussions where you pick apart the different pieces for discussion just gets everybody on the same page, which again is what I think is needed. So I, I thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on the show again. It was very interesting. Yep. Thanks for having me. As you can see from today's discussion, there are a number of factors that play in the energy transition, with energy storage being a critical component of the overall progression. And it also needs a number of parties working together in tandem to help make sure that we achieve the lofty goals that have been set for us. I'm David Bammiller, and this is The Interchange Recharged. Join us in a couple of weeks for more insights into the technology that shapes the energy transition. Thanks for listening.